Um, can I just check before I start? I don't think, from looking around, there's anyone who's new in here this evening, is there? As I was looking around, every single person who I could see, I've seen before. There isn't anyone, is there? Okay, well that just, that just, that just saves a few things, but just to give a quick introduction, um, because some of you don't know me, um, my name's Gordon Campbell, I've been in Bath now 24 years, lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. Uh, I have the wonderful joy of being married to an amazing lady called Julie, and I have two gorgeous daughters called Anna and Beth who are both at university. And before I start my talk, I haven't got this on my notes, but what I think I should start with is the last 10 years of my life have been hard, really, really hard. I've been struggling big time. While at heart, uh, I've been on, that's revealed things. I've been in therapy uh, to do with things in my life. It's been a really difficult period. Um, the reason I'm sharing that is I am going to be saying some things that I just feel the Lord has been saying to me during that time. My, I've been struggling with sin. My sin has got worse, not better. And that's part of, this, part of what comes out in here. But just to say, God is good and God has brought me all the way through to the point that I'm now doing a talk, unbelievably, given what, I've, what has been going on in my life over the last ten years on righteousness. Um, it's the third of three talks, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, we don't know the last one. I do. Yeah, it's a secret. Is that next week? Is that next week? That's next week. So there you go, something to look forward to. But in, in terms of righteousness, I'm going to basically split it in four parts. What righteousness is, how it affects our view in relationship with God, how it affects our view of ourselves, and what that means for us today. So very applicatory towards the end. So, what is righteousness? Well, the dictionary definition is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. The quality of being morally right or justifiable. And for righteous... The dictionary definition is meeting accepted standards of what is right and just. Meeting accepted standards of what is right and just. So in human secular terms, righteousness is to do with a standard. Now, in secular terms, who sets those standards? What is the standard that people are seeking to, to attain to? Now, nations and governments set standards, the media set standards, friends set standards... Basically, it's whatever voice speaks loudest in our lives, whatever voice that we're listening to, whatever voice we spend the most time around. But what is it for us as Christians? For us as Christians, it has an even deeper spiritual meaning, because righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God. It is the extent to which we possess the qualities and fulfill the purpose for which we were designed. Let me read that say that again. It is the extent to which we possess the qualities and fulfill the purpose for which we were designed. It is a standard set by our Creator God against which we are assessed. Now apologies to all of those doing exams. I've just mentioned assessment. I've just mentioned standards. Um, I'm not trying, please hear me, to belittle what you're going through at the moment. Your, your exams are important. They are hugely important. But what we're talking about tonight, bear with, that's a Miranda phrase for anyone who likes it, 
is, I know that because my wife and daughters, not from, well actually, in fairness I have watched them, but that's by the by. The standard we're looking at tonight is righteousness in the eyes of God. And there is no greater standard and no greater exam or assessment that we take. So I wish you all your best with your exams, but just let's focus on this one. So what is the standard? What is that pass mark? What does God want from us to be righteous before him? Now, I've been a primary school teacher for 23, 24 years of my life and a head teacher for uh, probably about six or seven of those. Now, in those conversations with children that I have at primary school, I also have to teach all religions, not just Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all sorts. And one of the things that I get into conversation with is with the children as to, well, how do we get to heaven? How do we, what, what needs to happen to get there? What's the passion? And I can think clearly of several times where I've sat down with the children and said, what do you think the pass mark is? And I've asked the children, and the children have come up with 40%, 50%, 60%, whatever it might be. And I've said to them, okay, so if someone's, if the pass mark that God is setting is 50%, what about the person who gets 49.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Sin entered the world, and man no longer knew what it was to live in obedience before God. Man now knew what it was to live in disobedience to God. And because disobedience had entered, it's the same for us all. Just a quick point, which I hadn't written down. The first sin, Eve, was to go after the food. The first sin for man, to go after the woman. And the only reason I'm saying that is I have, over the years, struggled with pornography. It's not something I take great pride in at all. But it is a struggle, and I'm aware that that's a struggle for so many people in the world because of the world that we live in today. It's massive, and it's massive not just in the non-Christian world. Sadly, it affects an awful lot of Christian men as well. So that just kind of gives you a a bit of a flavour of the fact that sin has entered the world. And the next slide is abhorrent, I apologise. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And in Revelation They too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength, full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. That is abhorrent. That is hideous, that is horrible but that is the reality of just how much our God hates sin hates sin it can't be put strong enough there is the reality of a God who is full of wrath for the sin of mankind and the damage it does not only to each other but to the individual themselves he hates it why? why does he hate it? Because it separates us from him. It cuts us off from him. We were created in his image. We were created to be like him. To be in relationship with him. And sin gets in the way. So, what does God do? God has to sit as the judge. He is the judge of all the earth. Because he alone is the righteous one. But the problem with that is, how does that then affect sometimes our view of God? Our view of God can become the harsh, rule-making, autocratic, dictatorial, demanding God. And it can feel a bit like this. That God is showing us our sins. That God is upset with us for what we've done. And it can feel like a bit like someone's got their finger over us. An authority figure is putting us down. It can feel like he's imposing his demands upon us. That he expects and demands this perfection. This can leave us feeling that we have to follow rules to please him. That we have to attain to good works. That we have to fall into legalism or religiosity over and above relationship. But mercifully, whilst it's true that God is the judge, it is also true that he values relationship over religious observance. Relationship over and above religious observance. As Jodie so wonderfully put it last week when she talked about the prodigal son, 
God is the loving Father. He desperately wants relationship with us, so much so that he will come seeking for us in order that we can be brought back into his loving embrace and into his loving arms. Whilst he will judge because his righteousness and justice necessitates it, he will do, as I will share later, all, all in his power to restore us to himself. The picture of God as a rulemaking dictator, which some of us can fall into the trap of thinking, is a lie from the pit of hell, from the enemy. A lie that the majority of non-Christians, sadly, can still believe. That God is just pouring out rule after rule after rule. Do this, do this. Walk in this particular way. And sadly, sometimes the church can help give that incorrect view of what God is like. That it's all about living according to his rules and his regulations, rather than the relationship. But that's not God. That is not who God is. God is not fixated on rules. How do I know this? Well, slide 10. In the Garden of Eden, there was only one rule. There wasn't loads, there was one. And all that was was don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. One rule for mankind to obey. Not loads, that's the only one that was recorded in the book of Genesis. And then take it a bit further. Luke 10, 27. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he only said there's just two. There's just two that you need to follow. To love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body and mind and all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself. Just two. That simple. Because what does God want? God wants us to be like him. Full of love for one another. Full of love for ourselves. Full of love for our neighbours. Full of love for him. It's that simple. So the first point of application, because I'll go to more later, is don't allow sin to alter your view of God. Don't elevate your sin over and above God's love for you. God's love is far greater than your sin. He's n- yes, God is a judge. But he is both judge and loving father. A righteous view of God would have us recognise that as God is righteous, he hates sin, but as, if, as God is also love, he loves the sinner. He hates sin, but he loves the sinner. So, part three. How does righteousness affect our view of ourselves? Ooh, slide 12. This is a nightmare. 1 John 1, 8, 10. 8, 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Contrast that with 1 John 3, 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. I don't know about you, but those two don't seem to make any sense to me, because one is saying that we can't be without sin, and yet the other one is saying that we can't be continue on sin. So the two don't seem to go hand in hand. So how on earth can both be true? How can we have sin and yet not keep on sinning? Well, if we turn to Romans 3, which would have been our reading for today, it says in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. 
So the rules and the regulations and everything make us conscious of the fact that we are not living in a perfect life before God. Okay, so that's all true. So what about 1 John 3, 6? Well, if I read verse 21 to 24 of Romans 3, it says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The key bit here is those first six words. No one who lives in him. It is all to do with who Jesus is. The first arguably is the perspective of mankind looking at sin. It's a view of the state of humanity and the state of us through our eyes. The second, praise God, is the view of us through his eyes and and through looking at our lives in him. Jesus is without sin, so anyone found to be in him is also without sin. Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with hidden in Christ. So let me go back to the percentages. When I speak with the children and I talk about the 100%, they realise that they can't attain it, they can't make it. So I then go, okay, well there is actually one more percentage that actually is just unfair. What is it? And eventually, after a while, I get a child who will go, well, it's 0%. And I go, yes, and that's the key to all of this. If we, as humans, are seeking a righteousness of our own, and are some of those percentages in between 0 and 100%, for those of you mathematicians here, and for those of you who aren't, you can't be more than 100%. So if you think you've got 30%, 40%, whatever it is, that 100% gets you to be more perfect than God when you add it on. But when we actually come to the point of realising there is nothing we can do at all, and we accept that there is nothing, and we take on the fact that we are 0% because we've sinned, doesn't matter how big or small it is, God can give us that 100%. That's the wonderful news of the Gospel. God in one hand, Jesus Christ, 100% perfect. Us, in the other hand, 0%. And because of the maths, the two can be transferred. Jesus takes upon himself our sin, becomes 0%. We take upon ourselves, because of our belief and faith in him, the 100%. And then, we are perfect in the eyes of God. So that leads to the question, well, why on earth did God do that? Why, when he had the power to stop it at any moment... Did he go through the pain? Why did he get beaten and whipped and allow a crown of thorns to be pressed down on his head? Why allow his feet and hands to have nails hammered through them? Why allow his body to be stretched to breaking point? Well, the answer is simple. He hates sin, but loves the sinner. There is nothing God wants more than to restore us. To restore us back 
like Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, to a loving, righteous relationship with him. God and his people together. That's why Jesus died, and that's why redemption is so important. So finally, to conclude, what does that mean for us today? How do we apply this? Well, first, by recognising we have an enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls, prowls around like a worn lamb, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The enemy knows our weaknesses. The enemy knows our wounds and our hurts. The enemy knows the struggles that we have to try and overcome them. And he wants to keep us there, focused on our sin, focused on our failure to overcome it. He wants to keep us full of shame and guilt, condemned, agreeing with his lies, feeling unworthy and not good enough, thinking, there you go, you've messed up again, you're not good enough, you're getting worse. How can you call yourself a Christian? That's where the enemy wants to keep us. Doubting God's love, fearing his judgment, fearing his wrath. So how do we deal with our ongoing sin? Because I don't think I'm the only person standing here who's got that issue. I'd like to think I might be, but I don't think that would be the reality. Are there degrees of righteousness? Can one person be more righteous than another? Are there worse sins and sinners than others? Does sinfulness always decrease if we're becoming holy? There's a slide here. Dare I suggest that the arrow on the left, so not the arrow, the line on the left, is how many of us see the spiritual journey. A constant improvement with sin decreasing and our lives continually improving in godliness and holiness, becoming more like Jesus. That that is, sadly, how many people can view the Christian walk. I dare, but I hope I'm wrong. The second picture is what I think is more like the reality. As you can see, it's a spiral. There are times when we are going up. We appear to be getting better. But then there can be a time straight after it where we're going down. And the sin in our lives can appear to be getting worse. There are times when we can appear to be going backwards. There are times when we can appear to be going forwards. And it goes round and round and round. And for some of us, some of the sins we face, it can be a nightmare because we've been struggling with them again and again and again and again and again for years and years. There can be months where we're absolutely fine and then suddenly it hits us again and we can be brought down and we can feel heavy laden, burdened because that sin continues to get in the way. But when God looks at that journey, he sees that arrow running through it, that line running through it, the line of our Saviour Jesus Christ. He sees that line and he sees the struggle. He sees that we want to repent and that we haven't given up believing in him. The way into our faith is the way on in our faith. It is through repentance and belief. So, God has two standards. 100% and 0%. 100% of it is him. 0% of it is us. So if we are sinning, Here's another question for you. Does that mean we're falling away? Well, again, let me dare to say, no, it isn't. Falling away, 
getting more sinful does not necessarily mean you are not on the right journey. It does not necessarily mean you are not progressing in your relationship with God. David, from the Bible, King David, who Jesus is named for the whole of eternity as the son of David, David defeated bears and lions as a young boy. He had a heart after God. And yet what happened? When he was older, he ended up having an an affair with Bathsheba and ended up getting her husband killed. Does that mean his sin had got worse? Quite possibly, if we look at it through the eyes of man, his sin had got worse. So does that mean he'd fallen away? No, because falling away is not to do with sin. That is the enemy's trap. He wants us to think it is. Falling away is purely the revelation of what was never really there in the first place. If someone didn't repent and believe, and they're struggling with sin, they may well end up not acknowledging the faith that they supposedly were holding fast to. Because actually the reality was, it was never concrete in the first place. They'd never truly given their heart to the Lord. But when you have given your heart to the Lord, He will carry things on to completion. He will not give up. He will keep hold of the hand. He will help you to journey through. Why? Because you will keep on in repentance and belief. Your salvation is assured because it is not about you, it is about Him. A repentance that does not take place by our efforts. It is not about what we try to do on our own strivings. How do I know that? Because I've made that mistake over and over and again. I've tried to do it. I've tried my best efforts. I'm not against self-discipline. But actually the way to keep going is to keep falling on our knees before him and acknowledging that sin gets in the way. But he's provided the way out, which is Jesus. And every single time sin comes at me, I am reminded, not because of any my efforts, I'm reminded because the Holy Spirit lives in me of what Jesus has done for me. And I'm brought on my knees in repentance again before my living God as to how much I need Him. And He is my way forward. The devil knows my life. He knows the struggles I've had with rejection, powerlessness, feeling unworthy because of things that have happened in my life. He knows the wounds. He knows the hearts. He knows how to get at me. But God knows that too. And God is far greater than the devil is. So, let me finish. Because I've lost my way. Because I started talking and not following my notes. But God. God knows my sin. God knows our sin. And he allows us to keep sinning. Why? Because ultimately, if he allows sin in our lives... 
It's because what he desires is to bring revelation, redemption and restoration. He can heal us. He can go to those places that we've kept hidden. He can go to where the wound took place that has led to a life that has struggled with certain things for a long period of time. He can go there. He wants to take us there. And we might be going back and back and back and back, again and again, into cycles that are not helpful to be in, because we've never really dealt with the wound. But God is into healing wounds and redeeming, as long as we repent and believe. So, let me finish by praying. Uh, I'd like to turn to Philippians 1. So, if everyone can, just bow their heads and listen carefully as I pray, pray this over us all. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.